0: To First Kings, chapter one, we're going to be picking up where we left off last week. We've been studying the, basically, the life and times of the prophet Elijah now, for several months. Took a kind of a side road during the, the Christmas season, uh, and went into Isaiah uh, during that time. But we're going back into 2 Kings or into Second Kings now. Uh, and just remember what we talked about last week. And there's some, there's some basic information you really have to have in order to understand kind of the context of what's going on here. Uh, and just remember at this time, it's a time in history when the nation of Israel was divided into two separate kingdoms. One in the south called Judah and Benjamin was also included in that, a good bit of Benjamin. Benjamin. Uh, But the other tribes of Israel to the north continue to be be called by the name of Israel. Uh, And and if you're familiar with the prophets at all, you'll understand that it was a time when there was great division in the land and people had turned to idol worship and given up on the Lord God and just all kinds of terrible things were going on that were common. I mean, it was common. And we need to understand that the remnant was still there, that there were true believers there in Israel and Judah in those days. Uh, But at the same time, as a nation, they had become very apostate, and they had turned away from God, turned their back on God. And that's one of the reasons why he sent forth prophets like Elijah, was to call the people back. And at the same time, very often, to pronounce judgment. But the really neat thing about most of the books of the prophets is this, is even though there's charges brought, and God has every ground to bring these charges against these people, and there's a judgment pronounced, there's also a promise of restoration that comes on the other side of it. And we see that as a reflection of salvation, right? I mean, we were there. We were apostate. We were apart from God. But he's restored us to being part of his kingdom, to his family. Uh, just remember, as we began last week, the king, Haziah, is the son of Ahab. Ahab was the king that came before him and was very wicked. And he's noted in places in scriptures as being the wicked, most wicked king that ever ruled over Israel. Uh, and all of that. And His wife's name was Jezebel, and she was just as he was probably worse than her husband was. Uh, in all of that, and then Elijah went forth, and he stood against them. He spoke against them in God's name, in you know God's word, giving to Elijah speaking uh, against uh, the king and his wife and and the apostasy of Israel uh, over and over again. But now Ahab has died, and so it's. Jezebel hasn't died yet, but she will shortly. Uh, And Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, is ruling in his place. And as we read last week, the first few verses, that Ahaziah had fallen through a lattice uh, grating in the floor of the palace, evidently, and he was very seriously injured in doing that to the point that he was in fear that he was going to die as a result of his injuries. And so what he does is he sends messengers to inquire. He sends messengers to Ekron, which is actually basically in the land of Judah at that point in time. So he's going outside of Israel uh, to inquire as to whether he would recover from his injuries or not. To the God of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. Amazing thing. And God had sent the prophet Elijah to intercept them along the way and say to them, "Is it? and this is a message not to the messengers, but a message to Ahaz or Ahaziah himself, uh, is it because there is no God in Israel you're going to consult with Beelzebub above the God of Ekron? And that is where we we'll are pick up this morning with verse 4. Now, therefore, uh, thus says the Lord... You shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up. You shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. When the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, A man came to meet us and said to us, Go return to the king who sent you and say to to him, Thus says the Lord, is Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. And he said to them, What kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? And they answered him, He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound around his loins. And he said, It is Elijah uh, the Tishbite. Well, we need to remember some things. The first one is this, is that the message that comes forth here is not Elijah's message. It's God's message spoken through Elijah. He's only been faithful in doing what God has called him to do, that God has sent him forth with his message to Ahaziah. uh, And the message is that uh, you're not going to recover from your injuries, but you're going to die. That The bed you're on now is going to be your deathbed. So what is going on here? Well, there are a lot of things that we can consider in... uh, One of the things that I thought was interesting about it is this, is Ahaziah does not ask or send these messengers to the so-called God of Ekron, Beelzebub, and ask that he be healed. He's just asking for insight. Am I going to recover from my injuries or not? That's kind of an amazing thing, because you would think that probably that would be the most thing with concern on his mind is that he would be healed from, from from all of it. So, so basically, in a sense, it's almost like he's sending these these messengers to have his fortune read. So that he knows what, he'll know what the outcome is. Now we understand this. Even the little ones among us understand this. That's quite human to hope for healing when we're injured or when we're sick or anything like that. Like I shared before you this morning that we had the flu this week, and let me tell you, I was sicker than I've been in a very long time. I was supposed to meet with the examining committee on Wednesday night, and they were shorthanded, and, and I had to email them and say, I just can't make it. There's just no way I can possibly do what I'm doing. And let me tell you, this morning I just feel elated. And one of the reasons is because that's, we're beyond that now, and, and what a relief it is, and what a joy it is. So, we can understand the human nature of, of someone wanting to be cured of uh, illness or an injury like that. And we've all experienced that uh, in our own lives. So, it's quite human for a Hesiah to be doing what he's thinking, at least thinking what he's thinking. Uh,. Now, what if we were very seriously injured? I mean, have you ever gone to the hospital because your heart was messed up, messing up or, you know, something like that that you knew was a life-threatening thing and you were there with the physicians? What, what, what do you think would be the very first thing that you might say to the doctor or to one of, to one of the EMTs? I would imagine they hear this over and over again. People saying, am I going to die? Am I going to die? Is this going to, you know... Be the end of me. So we can understand that. But see, Ahaziah has a major, major issue. It's the biggest issue that any person could possibly ever have. And it seems as though he's completely blind to it. He's consumed with concern about his physical body. That's the thing that's on his mind. He wants to be healed from these injuries that he suffered. And he seems to be blind to the idea that there's a, that he suffers from a condition that is far worse and far more serious. And something he, he should have the most and utmost concern about. And that is his spiritual well-being. He seems to have no concern about that at all. The only thing he's thinking about is is getting through that day with another breath and with some idea or some hope of being healed from his injuries. But he's like completely blind to the fact that he's suffering from something that is far, far worse. He's spiritually sick. As a matter of fact, he's spiritually dead. He needs to be be revived spiritually above and beyond everything else. Comes right down to it. He seems to be terrified of dying. That's the thing he's consumed with. Am I going to die? Is this going to be the thing that kills me? He sees death as his very greatest enemy. Let me tell you today, it it amazes me sometimes the length to which some people seem to be willing to go if they have any hope of something extending their life just a few more hours. I think there really is a sense of a fear of death that is very prevalent in our culture. Now, we've talked over the weeks as we were remembering the birth and, and, and all of the things that are encompassed by the Christmas celebration. That, and we spoke about how, the, how Jesus, the light, had come into the darkness in order to lead us out of the darkness. And that he'd come to set the captives free. But let me just remind us this morning that he's come for a lot of reasons. one of the, Maybe the main reason is that he would overcome the power of death over us. that we would no longer fear death. We have no reason as believers, if we truly believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior and we believe in the promises of God, we have no reason at all to fear physical death of the body. And that is one of the greatest gifts we get through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Death no longer has its sting. On the other hand, people that don't know Jesus Christ have every reason to fear death. And very often they do, and for very good reason they do. And death is a horrible thing for them. But let me tell you, when we rest in Christ, it's just not. It's nothing for us to fear. There's a sense in which death should be something we almost look forward to. You know, if we want to be self-centered and selfish and, and not think about other people around us that depend upon us, that love us, and we love them and all that, if we were entirely selfish people, then you and I would embrace death we would run to death willingly desiringly with great passion you ever think about the martyrs how in the world they were able to do what they've been able to do and let me just tell you something there are going to be people martyred in this world today for one reason that's because they they know the lord jesus christ and that's it they're going to give their life for him It's not something probably anybody in the United States may do, but there are places in the world where people today will die because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's amazing when you read the accounts of people that go through this. Singing hymns and praising God and saying things like, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You tell me those people are afraid of dying. Not afraid of dying at all. They're embracing death. Because that day they will be with Jesus in paradise. The messengers returned to him. He asked him, why have you come back? I mean, can you imagine this? I, I guess what happened was they must not have been gone very long. And maybe Ahaziah was not that brilliant a guy, but he understood that it took so much time to go to Ekron and to come back, and not near enough time had passed by for these messengers to have gone and done what he asked them to do. Now we understand this, that that Ahaziah was a king, and kings are used to people doing what they tell them to do, right? I mean, when the king commanded, you did what the king commanded you to do. And sometimes if you didn't do that, there were severe consequences. You might be in prison. Sometimes you'd be executed. I mean, the king's word was the king's word, and you did whatever the king told you to do. So, for these men, where I'm assuming men, uh, to not continue on even after they met Elijah is an amazing thing. They had to be convicted, they had to be convinced that they, it was time for them to go back and not complete their mission. And what I would say, too, is this. Is, so It's one of the examples of how amazingly persuasive the word of God is. Even sometimes on ears that are not necessarily ready to hear it. They go back to the king without doing what he told them to do. Elijah was truly a messenger of God. And see, the thing about it is, is what God has done in this is he's taken Ahaziah's messengers, and he has made them now his messengers to carry his message back to the king. So who's in control here? Ahaziah? Ahaziah? Well, let's just say this. If God can speak through a donkey, (laughs) he can speak through anybody. And God chooses to do that with these particular messengers sent by Ahaziah. So he asked him why they've come back, and they replied to him, A man came to us, and he said to us, Go, go, back to the king who sent you, and say this to him. The Lord says, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're sending messengers to consult with Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will surely die. We need to understand we're talking about a different generation here. Most of the other things we talked about, Elijah took place in the generation of Ahab. Now his son has come to this place. Uh, And we have no way of knowing exactly how much Ahaziah knew about Elijah. Uh, You know, was he there when, you know, they had the confrontation with the prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel and all that? We don't know. Uh, But we do know this, that Ahab's uh, idea of Elijah was not a good. As a matter of fact, at one time he called, he accused Elijah of being the troubler of Israel. He's the one that caused all the trouble. He's the one that caused all the drought. He's the one who caused all the famine and everything else that went along with it. It's very good uh, chance that, uh, that Ahab had conversations with his son, right? And maybe he advised him about this fellow named Elijah, who was his enemy, who was against him. Did these men have any knowledge of Elijah themselves? Well, it'd be hard not to, I think. When you just consider some things, and one of those is the phenomenal things that Elijah's done. Just think about the confrontational Mount Carmel, you know, apart from everything else. That would have to be common knowledge of Israel, that that took place. Because we know that people talk, and people talk a lot when it comes to very phenomenal and and, and amazing things. Go back to the king and they did. And the message is not what Ahaziah was hoping for. The message is you're gonna die. You're gonna die from your injuries. The interesting thing is this is in the Hebrew. It basically says you're going to die, die. You're going to doubly die. Now, why would it say something like that? Well, for this reason. Remember we talked about repetition in Scripture. You see, repetition in Scripture is a way of emphasizing something, the importance of something, the certainty of something. In other words, when this message means this, is you are certainly, surely, no doubt about it. There's no way it's not going to happen. You're going to die. You're not going to come down from your bed. I think there's also a part of this. Who here loves pain? Pain. Anybody here just get up this morning and say, gosh, I just hope I have a bunch of pain today. I just love it. I feed on it. Just give me as much as I can handle. I want it. I want it. Give it to me. Not likely. And we know there's different forms of pain. There's physical pain. There's emotional pain. There's spiritual pain. There's all kinds of pain. But it's nothing that any of us relish. And I would imagine there's an underlying idea in this message, and that is that uh, you're going to die from your injuries, but you're going to linger for a time. You're going to be in pain. There's going to come a time probably where Ahaziah wants to die. The pain becomes so bad. But he dies. And the thing about it is, is we know the rest of the story, and that is what, what, what Elijah says, what God says to Elijah is exactly what happens. He dies from his injuries. And that's a sad thing, but at the same time, how much sadder is it that he died in spiritual death? Because those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, as he said to the thief on the cross, I believe this is true for every one of us, that he says to us, today you will be with me in paradise. But we understand that it's not that way for people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. That it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the angry God that so we read in Hebrews. When we hear about things like this, we should be moved for a lot of reasons. And one of those is you know, how worthy God is to be honored and worshipped and loved and all of that. And how often he doesn't get any of those things. Should also be give us some sense of the measure of the of the sin that we all bear. But at the same time, as we were talking about in Sunday school, it's a reminder to us that God is not only uh, our provider and our deliverer and our redeemer and all those other kinds of things; He's also judge. He's judged Ahaziah and he's found him wanting. Death for Ahaziah would be a horrible. And he asked him, What manner of man came to meet you and told you these things? Now, The particular word there that is translated as manner can be type or kind, but it's very rarely. As a matter of fact, if that's true in this particular case, it's the only place in the Old Testament that's what this particular Hebrew word means. More often, it means things that have to do with judgment or governing. In other words, what I would say to you, maybe a better translation of this would be what judge of man came to meet you. Now, does that sound a lot like maybe a title that might be ascribed to Elijah? Wasn't he God's messenger, and very often that message had been a message of judgment? And he replied to him, he was a man, the owner of a garment made of hair and a belt of leather tied around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. From Scripture, it's not really clear whether Elijah was a hairy man or he was wearing a garment that was made from hair, animal hair of some sort. Okay. Okay. Uh. The thing I want you to glean from this, most of all, is this: is it was something about the attire of Elijah that set him apart from everybody else. He didn't wear the normal stuff that everybody else did, so that people would even they would know it as Elijah just by describing his dress. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, teaching in regard to all of this, it's very mindful of John the Baptist, right? Let me just read you a few things that Jesus said. Well, in Matthew, we, we read these, this verse. Now, John himself was, uh, had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Sounds just like Elijah, doesn't it? Jesus, at one point, says "And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah to come. Now, what does Jesus mean, Elijah, to come? It all has to do with the very last verse in the Old Testament. Do do you understand? Do you have any idea how the Old Testament ends? It's a verse that there's a promise of Elijah coming. And Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that promise of Elijah coming. But they're described basically the same way John the Baptist and Elijah. The same dress, the same manner of man. But it comes down to this, and that is that Elijah stood out like a sore thumb just based upon the way he dressed. Probably a lot of people looked upon him as a weirdo. You know, he dresses different than everybody else. Just all kinds of things. Can you imagine the conversations that went on about Elijah? People see him walking down the road. The interesting thing is this, is that when uh, the messengers just say, describing, then Ahaziah knows exactly who they're talking about. It is Elijah the dishbite. Just based upon their description of his dress. And I would imagine those words were spoken with a very high degree of disdain. It wasn't, oh boy, hallelujah, wonderful news. It was Elijah. It's that troubler of Israel all over again. Now he troubled my father, he troubled my mother, now he's troubling me. And all the time blind to the idea that is their apostasy, their sin that has led the people to follow in the consequences of the condition of Israel. Well, I'd say there was something that even more importantly set Elijah apart in his time, and that was his sense of morality. That it was his character that really set Elijah apart from the vast majority of people around him. I mean, you're talking here about a government that was sanctioning idol worship. A government, a king, a monarchy of Israel that encouraged the people to be idol worshipers. And who himself practiced the same thing. Elijah stuck out like a sore thumb you ever read much of Jeremiah? Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is the abuse that he received. Verbal abuse, physical abuse, this kind of abuse, that kind of abuse, simply because he stuck out like a sore thumb. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you understand that, that God sent forth his true prophets, but for every prophet it seems as if there were hundreds of False prophets who are saying exactly the opposite of what the prophets were saying. Jeremiah was warning the people of Judah. Jeremiah was warning the people of Jerusalem. And then as the Babylonians are coming, and they're going to come in here, and they're going to tear this place down to the stubble. And all the false prophets were going around saying, no, no, no. You are the people of God. You go by his name. You are his chosen people. He will not let an arrow fall into this place. And what did history attest to? Who was the true prophet? Jeremiah was. They were very unpopular people in their time and in their day, my friends. They probably didn't have a lot of buddies. They didn't have a large social group that they were part of. Sometimes like we, we saw with Elijah, he was isolated. He lived in isolation by himself for lengthy periods of time. Sometimes they were hunted. Elijah was hunted by Ahab and Jezebel to take his life. They, they stood out like sore thumbs in a culture, in a world that was very contrary to their understanding of everything. The more the United States becomes secularized, the more Christians should stand out like sore there's a sense in which people should know where we're coming from and in all of that just by our demeanor just by the things that they see us do or don't do by the things they hear us say or not say The sad thing is this, guys, is more often than not from us they get what they expect. And that's not a lot of difference. Uh, Let me tell you, the world out there thinks we're a bunch of self-righteous people who look down our nose at everybody else. That's what they think. And sometimes we give them reason to believe it. Right? Right? The challenge, guys, is this is to be Elijah in our day. Be like Elijah in our day. To be lights in the darkness. To be salt. Jesus calls us to be light. Jesus calls us to be salt. Well let me ask you something. Have you ever had salt rubbed in a wound? Does it feel good? So sometimes, no matter how you say what you say, if you say the right thing, it's going to come across as being abrasive to some people. You know, there's more and more pressure today to be politically correct. Lori and I were watching something one night, and it was was absolutely laughable. It was laughable what was going on here. This sense that today you're not even supposed to say good morning to someone. Or ask someone how their day is going, or this, that, or the other, because they may be offended by it. And we're going, at the end of it, we're going, how in the world would you ever even talk to anybody? Because anything you say might be offensive to somebody for some crazy reason. See, that's how the world's becoming We we are in the world, but we cannot be as the world is. That you and I are the greatest testimony or one of the greatest testimonies of the power of God working in the lives of sinners. And we need to be willing and very open to sharing what we know. And we understand this. It can't be just in what we say. They have to know that we believe it. The world out there today is very untrusting of people. Very often very untrusting of religious people. Because very often they look upon church people and others as being self-righteous. In other words, us seeing them. In a bad light, at the same time seeing ourselves in a very good light. In other words, projecting the idea that if you want to be okay, you just need to be like I am. And if you're not like I am, then there's something wrong with you. We have the most important, the most beautiful, the most wonderful, the greatest message that people have ever Ever had to carry the message of salvation through Jesus Christ to sinners such as we. See, Brown said this one time. You've heard me say it before, and I just think there's a lot of wisdom in it. And he said this. He said, the world is never going to take us seriously about sin. It's sin until we're honest with it about our So let's stop portraying ourselves to the world as these self-righteous people who always do the right thing, who always say the right thing, who always think the right thing. They need to know that we are sinners. And the only difference is this, is we know. We know that. But we also know that Jesus has covered our sins see that's the only difference the only thing you and I amount to is we're just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread that's all it comes down to we have a king his name is Jesus And he's the only true king. And he's the only king that we need. Amen.